Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Hello, I'd like to welcome everyone to another one of our WCAPS Vive series podcasts. My name is uh, Bonnie Jenkins. I am the executive director of WCAPS, and it's really an honor for me to welcome Miriam Sifi, um, who's going to be telling us a little bit about her amazing career, some of the wonderful things she has been doing. And um, I really have to say what an honor and joy it is for me to meet uh, so many amazing women working in the fields of peace, security, conflict, transformation, uh, national security uh, type things. And I, I just I'm learning so much about um, the many issues and um, just the breadth of expertise that we have as women and women of color on these fields, in these fields, and um, so many of us uh, that we don't get to hear about. So um, this to me is one of the uh, best things about not only uh, running this organization, but being able to do these kind of podcasts and events to get our voices out there. So what I'd like to do first is start by asking Miriam to say a little bit about herself. Uh, so you, Miriam, can introduce yourself to our audience. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Bonnie, uh, for having me on your podcast. And I think these types of platforms, women of color advancing peace and security, and um, these spaces are so critical uh, for, especially for women of color in, this, um, in, in the fields of national security and, and, um, and peace and security. So a little about me, I've, um, you know, I started my career uh, in public service when I was in the Peace Corps in Jordan. So that was when I was 19, I was young, out of college. And, um, and that, since then, my trajectory has sort of been focused on, um, you know, international development, uh, human rights, advocacy. Um, I've been in the Foreign Service for about 10 years, um, mainly uh, in overseas, so career foreign service in the Middle East. Uh, I was in Egypt during the revolution um, in 2011 and was in Iraq during our military withdrawal. I was in Baghdad for nine months and then Erbil for three, um, and then came back to Egypt uh, during another time of uh, sort of uh, movement, which was uh, in 2013 when TC came to power and then eventually was in DC doing some position folk, uh, policy jobs in the Secretary's Office of Women, uh, Global Women's Issues, as well as the Secretary's Office of Religion and Global Affairs. And then uh, most Recently, in the Foreign Service, I was a spokesperson at our consulate in Lahore, in Pakistan, and um, and just a few weeks ago, I just wrapped up a fellowship with uh, through the Council on Foreign Relations, the International Affairs Fellowship, where I was placed at a human rights organization called the Human Rights Foundation, which works with uh, dissidents and citizen journalists and others from authoritarian regimes um, to sort of amplify their work. So, uh, so yeah, so it's been uh, largely a career in public service uh, with with an interest in, uh, I also on the side do some advocacy work on um, an issue um, that's not that well known uh, in the United States called female genital mutilation. And there was a recent federal case which overturned, or just a federal case that overturned the statute that I'm now looking at um, uh, 
advocacy at the state level to, to make sure we have legislation criminalizing FGM. So a lot of things on my plate, uh, but it's, um, but I love uh, uh, the network because it really has helped me grow personally and professionally. Wow, thanks. That's a great introduction. There's so many things I could ask you about yeah. in our 40 minutes. <laughs> So many things that uh, I'd love to hear about some of your experiences, especially, you know, being in, in Egypt and Iraq and, and, and you're being modest because I believe you recently received an award. So I'm going to ask you about that as well. Um, but why don't I start by asking, where, where did your interest in public service come from? Um, did, I mean, in my situation, I, you know, I, I'm not sure where it came from very often when I speak at panels, they, you know, and I talk about public service, I, I think back as far as I can and from the earliest that I can remember, I wanted to do something to help others, to work on a big, um, big global issues. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't remember a particular event or anything that caused yeah. me to want to do public service. But um, where did your interest come from uh, to do this work? It's such a, it's a really good question. Um, I think like you, I'm not sure what the exact, there was an exact moment, um, but I feel like probably when I was, you know, maybe seven or eight years old, I was, um, you know, like, like many products of immigrant, you know, with immigrant parents, first generation, you know, I was employed to work early. So I was, uh, my mom was, um, is a family practitioner. And so she had her own clinic. And so anytime, you know, after school or in the summer, you know, I'd have to, we'd, I'd work in her office. And so I'd see her, you know, she's a family practitioner, a general practitioner. So, you know, loads of patients just coming through. Um, and just this sort of idea of public service, you know, my mom often would see patients that are low-income patients, and even those who can't afford just kind of doing pro bono work, um, because she's so rooted in this idea of serving others. So I think as a young child, I sort of saw my mother um, in that space. And it was interesting, too, because my dad actually was an engineer by trade, but he kind of, he quit his job to help my mom. So he became the office manager. It became his family enterprise. And so I, um, and that was a, also through his uh, um, kind of, you know, example, the, both of them, their example of service to others, that inspired me. I didn't know how I would, what the, what my, what service would look like for me growing up. I assumed I would become a doctor like my mom, take over her practice. That's, I think, definitely what my parents had hoped for. Um, but then Peace Corps, I think, was the pivotal moment for me. I was there during 9-11, I was in Jordan, and it was, uh, you know, the first time I'd really lived kind of on my own in the Middle East, uh, and, you know, in this, it was a very, you know, you're, you're in a village, you're disconnected from, from a lot of, you know, comforts and, and, you know, family, and so I realized, you know, there's, uh, there was definitely a disconnect in terms of, you know, literacy, American literacy about the region, my own at that time as well. I learned so much when I was there. Um, so I wanted to come back and figure out how to sort of bridge some of these um, cultural divides and, and just kind of on both sides. Uh, so, so that was, I think, probably the moment that like pushed me towards uh, a career in, in the foreign service and then kind of international affairs. Great. And um, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, as I was saying, um, like you, I mean, the, the desire for public service is it, it's the one thing that I, I knew I wanted to do. It is when I talk about these things and I and it, people ask, you know, about where I ended up. I said, the one thing I knew was I wanted to work in government. Um, yeah. And that kind of that was my direction, I think, for a lot of my decisions early on. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm not sure if we did, but say a little bit about, bit about where you're from and, and yeah. um, your education. I think we skipped that. 
Oh, sure. So I was born in Texas. I'm from Fort Worth, very proud Texan. Uh, my parents actually, they have a farm. They have 50 acres of land. So we have, you know, goats and cows. And at one point we had a llama to protect oh, wow. the goats. Yeah, so it was a very, it was a, you know, fun childhood. Uh, and I still love going home to the farm because it does, there's something, it brings me some peace uh, when, especially with the chaos uh, happening around us. So, um, so I grew up in Texas. When my undergraduate was, um, so I actually did this math and science academy. So I started college early when I was 15. And then I finished uh, at the University of Texas in Austin, which I loved. It was a great experience. Um, and I uh, then uh, did the Peace Corps and then eventually um, came to New York to do graduate school uh, at, at Columbia, their international affairs program. So that's kind of when I deepened my understanding of the region of the Middle East. Um, and I focused on um, human rights uh, as kind of a, another area of expertise. So, and I'd actually wanted to, after the program realized I had a love for uh, journalism. So I, I applied to the journalism program at Columbia and I got in, but they were not willing to, or I think my credits weren't able to transfer. So I thought, oh my goodness, this is right during the financial crisis when all the uh, publishing houses and newspapers were starting to close down. And so I thought, you know, a journalism professor advised me, like, who was kind of my mentor, why don't you just go overseas, work for some English daily, produce clips you don't really need the degree per se you just need the um this record of experience so that's kind of what led me to the foreign service because i had applied well before uh like while i was in grad school almost forgot about the application because it takes so long for the clearance process and all of that and then i realized okay if i go overseas through this then maybe later i can kind of um, transition into uh into staying and being a journalist and then I ended up just getting sucked in and loving the Foreign Service. So I was there at such an exhilarating time in um, 2011 when everything was kind of, you know, uh, Cairo just, uh, I think, wowed the world, like with, with what was happening and, and with, the, with the protests. And, um, and it's been complicated ever since. But it's been, uh, for me, yeah, uh, it was Texas and New York, I think, my two pre-Foreign Service, like, kind of uh, formative places that shaped me. Right. And I, I also am fond of, of UT Texas Austin. I, I did some um, some seminar classes there last year. Um, and it's such a nice place. And it's great. I really, and I'm, still, I, I'm still in touch with my professors there. Like it's oh, been good. so long. Yeah, like Sarah Wennington, who uh, was the attorney who uh, won Roe Ro versus Wade, like she, she taught a course on gender-based discrimination. And, and she's actually the one, when I think about who because my parents were really pushing me to do medicine, my whole, I mean, like many South Asian immigrant, you know, children of immigrant parents, like that's kind of like, okay, stability and service, and that makes sense. And Sarah was the one who said, you know, you're, you're interested in so many things, like, you know, maybe you, you should do a kind of work in government or public service, like if you, have you thought of that? And I was like, oh, you know, I have, or she even said, well, what do you, what do you want to do? And I, like, no one's really asked me that question before, like, what do I want to do? So I think she sort of, planted the seed when I think about my career later because um you know it was a big supporter of everything I did so I feel like these mentors I mean I think it's another reason why I love the program the the network you've created because you're creating this kind of um pipeline through this podcast and other like this, this mentorship uh it, it's so critical especially I think for women of color yes great thank you so let's talk about some of the, these interesting things you've done let's start with the Peace Corps yeah. Um, and so you knew that you were you definitely were committed to public service because you went yes. into the 
Corps. Uh, yep. so talk a little bit about that. So I joined the Peace Corps, you know, uh, back in 2000. So this was like right when the second Intifada had started. So it was a kind of a tough time. And then 9-11 happened while we were there. So that was another moment, watershed moment. So um, for me, I kind of went in, um, not really sure. I was, you know, curious about the region being, you know, growing up in a Muslim family, I was you know, interested in learning Arabic and reconnecting with the sort of broader, you know, kind of community of Muslims. And so I picked Jordan specifically, or I really wanted, I was lucky enough to get Jordan um, uh, because there were only two countries that fulfilled my criteria at the time. It was Morocco and Jordan, because they were Arabic speaking and Muslim. And so, um, but for me, I just realized like, uh, you know, when I got there, how little I knew about the region really. Like I, um, you know, had certain ideas or biases or assumptions. I learned a lot also about, um, you know, like patterns of labor migration, domestic workers from South Asia and Southeast Asia, and some of the issues um, around um, their vulnerabilities, I had no idea. So I really kind of, I think the, and then just the, in terms of our policy in the region, um, I hadn't, I mean, I had studied, I was, you know, pre-med and focused on biology and undergrad. So I didn't really have a strong uh, background in international affairs before I went to the Peace Corps. And I think that really, it helped open up my mind a bit. And I started asking a lot more questions. I think I came out of the experience um, asking more questions uh, about sort of, you know, uh, what is, you know, the, the role of diplomacy, the role of um, even cultural diplomacy of just being, me being there as a woman of color, you know, my cohort at the time, there were 50 of us, and um, I, only maybe four or five people of the 50 were people of color and women of color. So there were three of us that were women of color. So um, it was a, not a very diverse group. So the perception of Jordanians, we were relatively new there too. So they assumed um, they didn't quite know what Peace Corps was because we were just a new program. It wasn't very well established. There was no track record. So when I came in there, I remember um, people thought I was just like, there were a lot of uh, Sri Lankan domestic workers. You know, so they thought I assumed I was not... Uh, American and, you know, kind of sometimes a little bit derogatory. Um, and then later, you know, I kind of said, well, Americans come in many, you know, I think, I think you probably face this too, where you're just like, you know, you're in overseas context, like the idea of what an American looks like isn't mm -hmm. maybe how you're packaged. So I think right. that was probably the most powerful at the end of my two years, I remember sitting on the bus in my village and uh, I had, a, there was a, a American, you know, who, a white American who was like the village next to mine. And I, people in my village would say, oh, we wish we had someone, you know, who could speak English like an American, you know, assuming my English wasn't, you know, even though was my native tongue, Texan, I guess, English, like, or whatever. But uh, <laughs> they, so they, they were sort of, and then later, I would always say, no, I'm American, but Indian origin, or, you know, I'm, but I'm just as American as my neighbor, who happens to be whatever descent she's from. And then later, I remember on the bus, uh, you know, we're, we're dry and I'm listening in Arabic. By then I could understand Arabic. And so somebody says, oh, who is the, like the Sri Lankan, you know, whatever. And this guy next to, the guy next to him on the bus was like, oh, no, no, she's American of Indian descent. And we have someone else in the neighboring village who's American of Swedish descent. And so they started to like, so it was kind of a funny moment where I was like, okay, my presence here has kind of opened up their world as much as they've opened up my world. So, so it was a really like powerful, powerful mm -hmm. uh, experience. Great. Um, it's funny because I was I was actually at the uh, University of Massachusetts three weeks ago, and I got to walk through the uh, presidential library for um, President Kennedy. Oh wow! And they had a nice little section on 
Peace Corps. And oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah really that was like, it's such a great program. Yeah. So, um, so foreign service, what made you, I mean, I think it's a natural fit for everything mm -hmm. that you've been saying in Peace Corps. Um, but um, what was it that made up your mind that you definitely wanted to do that? Well, for me, it was actually, you know, it wasn't a part of my original plan. Like, I think I saw myself much more of an uh, activist outside of government, um, mm -hmm. you know, working maybe for a human rights group or an advocacy group. And so it was only really, I finished SIPA uh, in 2007 and then the financial crisis hit. At the time I was consulting, I was a consultant for the Ford Foundation and I was really happy there. I loved it. And it was, um, you know, sort of, uh, it was a nice kind of, stepping stone job, you know, after grad school. And I was so comfortable there that I was like, oh, maybe I'll try to find a way to, you know, get a permanent position here. And then, you know, financial crisis hit, there's new leadership at the foundation. And my boss at the time was like, well, you know, job security is a bit, it's a bit of a question mark for all of us. And so uh, just letting you know, because my contract was sort of a renewable, like every six months, it would be up for, for renewal. And so then when the foreign service letter came through, like, congratulations, you know, you've been accepted. I, um, you know, really, I was like, it wasn't my first choice, you know, because I had seen myself much more outside of government. So I really stumbled into it because of circumstance, because of the economy. And my parents were like, listen, you need something that does healthcare, you know, come on, like, you know, you need to like, need some stability or and so I, I joined mainly for that reason. Um, and I thought it would be interesting. I was sort of curious about it. I remember meeting at the time when I was in Jordan, it was Ambassador Bill Burns, who was the ambassador who hosted us and, and talked a little bit about the the career itself. So I, I had some exposure, not a lot, but a little bit. So I was like, you know, this could be a really interesting thing. Let me just try it and see. Uh, and it turns out, I mean, I just fell in love with the career. So it was one of the best kind of, I've learned through life, like you, you can't really plan. Like I had a very, when I was much younger, I had a script, I'm going to do this, then this, and this. And then you kind of realize as I'm getting older, more into the sort of mid-career phase, that you just can't plan plan everything and sometimes being open uh, to, you know, spontaneous opportunities that come up um, and just embracing them because you never know. And so then uh, I can't even imagine my life had I not stumbled into this career. Uh, and so, so I'm grateful, but it, it, but it wasn't something that I had planned or intended to, to do. So let's talk about some of it because you've had some interesting, um, some interesting rotations of uh, what yeah. you did join. I mean, going to, being in Egypt and Iraq yep. um, during the transitions, particularly in, in Egypt, um, and then Pakistan. And so those are interesting um, um, jobs uh, for all, and the timing is amazing. Yep. Say a little bit about Egypt. Um, so Egypt was, was amazing. I mean, I, I have to say I was there working, uh, managing cultural exchange program. So it was my first assignment, first tour in the Foreign Service. Um, I was, you know, I think right when I arrived, actually, uh, President Carter came to visit and his son and his daughter-in-law needed someone to take them to, you know, just to, to do something while he had meetings. At that time, Mubarak was still in power. So he was having these high-level meetings. And I got to take his son and daughter-in-law to the pyramids. You know, it was like this kind of surreal experience, you know, to have, um, you know, and to meet President Carter after, like, literally when he's getting on the plane, it was a quick, you know, moment. But it was, it was sort of cool to kind of be there. Um, and then, of course, during the revolution, oh my, I think probably the most, one of the most transformational moments of my entire career was, was just being there to bear witness. I think, um, I don't think anyone really could have planned that that was going to happen. I mean, Tunisia happened 
before and that was the spark but nobody really knew how big the revolution or the uprising would be and cairo is just it's you know the most densely populated most populous country in the region so what happens in egypt really matters you know and so i think um you know it's still an ongoing revolution right i mean it's um uh, even now so but it was just being there seeing kind of people from all you know walks of life uh different faith traditions coptic muslim uh, different generations in the square. My favorite, um, like I, I remember there was this, in Arabic, it's irfarasik fog ana masri, like in, it, which in English translates as hold your head up high, you're an Egyptian. And so I, you know, the streets were so clean, like that moment in time was just sort of surreal because you could really feel like the people had kind of um, had just, there's a whole sense of civic responsibility and just a sense of ownership of the country. You know, I mean, I think that um, based on the kind of chants and the slogans and the even the graffiti, the artwork, like it was just kind of this flourishing. So, um, so it was a really I felt like very privileged and humbled to just even to physically just. I mean, it was fortuitous I happened to be posted there at that time, but um, but for me it kind of showed me what's possible that some of these social change movements, um, even if there are setbacks in the aftermath, like nothing is perfect and there are of course structural, uh, you know. Um, barriers like but but the fact that you can sort of see how people can come together in, in a non-violent way you know in terms of a transition it, it was really powerful i thought so um and you know at, i was actually my portfolio was focusing on young people in particular so after mubarak fell there was a lot of um we did a lot of programming around transitional justice and even connecting young people in cairo and tunisia together uh through digital video conference, you know, just because it was such an exciting moment. So um, some of those conversations, I think it was, for me, such a great learning experience. So until, okay, so what about Iraq? Yeah, so that was interesting too. I was there right when the military was withdrawing. So that was the end of 2011. Um, I got there October 2011 and stayed through the fall through 30 years. So um, for me, you know, it was my first uh, experience kind of in a fortress like embassy. So in Cairo and Egypt, we could get out, you know, we even, um, I think one of the, we, before the revolution, even I went all the way up to the, uh, to Rafah, to in North Sinai, we had exchange, you know, participants from exchange programs there, which is like along the border with Gaza. So we had a lot of um, flexibility, mobility where you could go out. And so for me, I think the biggest challenge was not being able to get out of the embassy um, very easily. And, you know, increasingly that's becoming a trend just because of the security situation, um, particularly after Benghazi. So you have to kind of deal with this. How do you do, my cone in the state in foreign service is public diplomacy. How do you do your outreach and your connecting, you know, even this, the stuff I did in the Peace Corps where you're connecting with people face-to-face, uh, -face, like it's, it's so powerful when you're kind of stuck behind this uh, fortress and so for me that was really one of the biggest challenges but i was sort of lucky in that tour because i was uh, that was my consular tour so i was interviewing applicants for visas um, non-immigrant visas special immigrant visas so um so i was able every day to connect with iraqis face to face um so that was unique because many people if you're doing public affairs work you want to go out but you can't because of the security situation so i learned a lot about just you know the different you know, it's different generations, you know, young, you know, um, mid-career, um, older. So, so I think, um, you know, it was, 
it, it was a bit heartbreaking too, just to, to see sort of the, um, the impact of conflict, you know, on civilians. And when I was there, it was just in the beginning, because um, 2011 was also when the uprising in Syria had begun. So we started to see at our consular window, Iraqis who were who had fled to Syria for safety, coming back to Iraq uh, because of the situation in Syria, because of the conflict. And then when I was in the northern part of Iraq in Erbil, I went to Duhok, which is a refugee camp on the border. And so I was able to kind of firsthand see sort of the impact uh, of, of what, you know, conflict in terms of displacement and, and uh, as either refugees or IDPs. So that, that was something that uh, for me was really, was really interesting. Great. And then I remember being in Pakistan for a short while while I was at the State Department. Uh-huh. And I just, we were there, I was there for a conference and, um, and I was kind of a host of an international event, uh, international meeting that was by the International Atomic Energy Agencies, um, one of their, one of the subgroups. Um, and even though I was hosting it with, um, you know, a, 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 some, some folks from Pakistan, they limited how long I could stay. So I had to leave before the end of the conference because I could only yeah. be there for three days. Right, right. Uh, I was an ambassador at the time, and and, and so uh, I didn't get to see much. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness, it's such a beautiful. Um, and which was unfortunate because, um, you know, because of the security things like that. But yeah. I didn't get to see. So tell me a little bit about your your experience in Pakistan because you got yeah. to see a lot more. Yeah. No, it was great. I mean, it was still kind of like Baghdad. We couldn't get out a lot. Um, but we got out definitely a lot more than when I was in Iraq. So I was posted in Lahore, which is kind of like the artistic kind of heritage, architectural heritage. It sort of um, was one of the capitals during the Mughal Empire. So um, so just beautiful, beautiful cultural heritage. Um, uh, one of the investments that the State Department made, um, it was kind of, it had already been made before I got there, but I was able to um, kind of uh, help organize the launch or the ribbon cutting ceremony was this beautiful mosque uh, called Wazir Khan, which is uh, just massive. I mean, it's kind of blends, you know, Safavid Iranian architecture with Mughal architecture. Um, it's, it's stunning and it's tiled with like blue and yellow and all of these different um, uh, mosaic designs. And so that was a pretty big investment. We, we built actually, so through the Aga Khan, a partnership with the Aga Khan Cultural Trust, we actually um, helped restore the front courtyard area. So not the mosque itself, but the area just in front of it, which ended up becoming a public space. And it was like the only public space in Lahore in the old city, because it's so kind of like a lot of places uh, in the Middle East. Um, there's, uh, um, hold on a second. Uh, so, I mean, one sec, sorry, I'm just doing a quick. Um, so yeah, so that was a really, uh, um, you know, I was able to, I think, get out a lot more than I thought I was going to get out because I was, I thought it would, I was under the impression it would be like Baghdad where you're just sort of locked in. Um, but, but we did, and we, we did a lot of, uh, collaborations on cultural heritage preservation. We also had a really cool collaboration with, um, the city of Austin in Texas where we um, linked the city of Lahore and the city of Austin around entrepreneurship. Um, so, so that was another, so we did a lot of events uh, where we were bringing in, for example, like venture capitalists from Texas and 
uh, entrepreneurs from, including diaspora entrepreneurs as well, to to sort of spark investment and and help address some of the issues around youth unemployment. So there was a pretty interesting range of uh, of programming that we could do there, even though there were a lot of restrictions of our mobility. So we had to get creative. Um, you know, another thing I remember we did in Pakistan was we couldn't get out that much, so we would build collaborations with. Um, media platforms, either like Pakistani television or this one group called Mango Boz, which is sort of like the BuzzFeed of Pakistan. And so then they would kind of produce some media products for us that we would then, that would highlight some of our programs. So, so I think in some of these um, conflict sort of like serving, you know, in the foreign service in places that are not the typical, it's not London or Paris or sort of places that where it's a little bit easier to do these things, you end up getting a lot more creative about um, your how to how to keep you know pushing for your you know the goals around you know prosperity and security and, and those sort of shared you know strategic goals. It's funny because I I I I just I just dawned on me that you're from Texas, but you don't have much of an accent. Yeah, I know. No, it's so funny to me because like I sometimes it'll come out amongst other Texans. But what's funny to me is like I was actually at a cattle auction with my dad. This was a few years ago, and um, I it must have been over ten years ago actually. Like right before I joined the Foreign Service, I was leaving New York, and friends of mine couldn't believe I was from Texas, so they were just like, you know. So I went home and I was like, I'm going to take this video and prove to them. You know, I'm at this cattle auction with my dad. And then I realized, like, my dad has more of an accent, even though he originally is from India. He has sort of an Indian accent with a Texas, like, twang. Like, he's, uh -huh. you know, because he's really been, like, especially in the rural parts where you're, like, getting the livestock and the whatever. And, like, but, uh, but no, I don't know how I, like, my brother and I both don't have it. But, uh, but even, like, my dad has it, which is kind of funny. So, <laughs> so it's, like, a funny, I was, like, I don't know how I, I think it's because the oh, school I went to. But it was, I don't know how it happened because it's like, it's true because I, I don't sound um, as, but sometimes when I'm around other Texans, y'all and some of the like, it'll come out a little bit, but yeah, not, not as much as, you know, so, so that is funny. That's a good point. That's a very interesting <laughs> observation. Yeah, I was like, wait a minute, I just realized that. Um, so great. So why don't, why don't we move on now? You, you, you sure. spent some time at CFR um, uh -huh. and now you're doing some work at Human Rights uh, Foundation, right? Well, actually, so the um, the uh, um, Human Rights Foundation was my CFR placement. So, okay. so with the the IAF fellowship, the International Affairs Fellowship, it's really interesting. So, it's essentially a way for people who are in government to get exposure for a year outside government, either working at CFR directly um, or working for an organization, a non governmental organization or a foundation. Um, and then the vice, vice versa. So if you're uh, outside government, then you would be embedded in government. So, so my placement for my CFR year was with the Human Rights Foundation, which is this organization that kind of um, amplifies uh, the work of dissidents and journalists. So, you know, um, the network is really interesting. So Ra'ad Fadis, who is a citizen journalist in Syria, was part of the network. Jamal Khashoggi, uh, Manal Sharif, who's a, the uh, woman who was one of the campaigners to help lift the driving ban in Saudi Arabia years ago. So, um, of course, now there's been um, many of the campaigners are now in prison. Uh, so, like Lujain Al-Hafloul and some others. So we kind of, I, it was interesting for me to gain perspective on um, how advocacy groups do the sort of, or how, how, non, how NGOs are doing sort of the advocacy work, because I'd seen it from the State Department side, 
um, you know, we have a bureau that focuses on democracy, human rights, and labor, and we have a, an annual human rights report where we use that as a, as a tool to kind of highlight uh, best practices and areas for improvement that goes country by country. Um, but it was also interesting to see kind of the, and some of the creative tools, like, I mean, the, um, for example, I was involved uh, with the Saudi dissident Manal al-Sharif, her campaign across the United States. She wanted to do a driving, like a drive across Saudi Arabia after the ban was lifted. But because of the climate there, it wasn't safe for her to do that. So then she ended up um, deciding, let's just drive across the United States. And I loved it because she picked, it wasn't just, you know, West Coast to East Coast, but it was very strategic. She overlaid the, the drive across the civil rights um, deep South. So it was Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and sort of, you know, and stopping in Birmingham and stopping, you know, in um, Montgomery where we went to the Rosa Parks Museum. And she actually has written a book and one of the chapters in the book is on Rosa Parks specifically. So as an inspiration. So it's interesting kind of the, the way she kind of crafted this, uh, I thought was really thoughtful because it wasn't just saying, okay, here's what's happening in my country. And there's issues around, you know, we want to have reforms on the guardianship system and put an end to what she called gender uh, apartheid. I mean, that's her words. Um, in terms of, and she was making parallels to racial segregation in the, in the South, during, especially during the, um, in the, in the United States in our own history. So I like that way of kind of framing it and, and really connecting the, the human rights movement transnationally um, and in a level, in a level, so it's not, you know, ask, it's, it's kind of comparing almost um, moments in history and struggles and, um, and, and really, you know, drawing inspiration and example from the United States uh, and how we could also sort of be involved in the conversation through our own history. So I thought that was a really powerful um, approach. Um, and I learned a lot from that. Great. So are you, are you still working at State Department? So I'm now, I'm, I'm technically on a leave without pay from the okay. State Department. So yeah. So yeah. So everything I'm saying, of course, is like personal capacity. <laughs> but yes, um, right. yeah. <laughs> so but okay. quite, I didn't know yeah. that was, I didn't know that was possible. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So, and now you're working on some very important uh, work, doing some advocacy work on genital mutilation. Why don't you say a bit about the, that for the, yeah. some of the folks who may not know much about that? Oh, absolutely. So this is interesting. So for me, you know, I, um, again, it's another one of those moments where I sort of stumbled into this advocacy work. I, uh, you know, uh, the issue of female genital mutilation, it's something that's not that well known. Um, and I'm glad, Bonnie, that you asked about it, because it happens, you know, more than I would have thought. So it's over 200 million women and girls uh, are affected by the consequences of FGM. So they're either survivors or have been impacted um, globally, and in, right here in the United States, over half a million um, are either at risk or are survivors of FGM. So um, I actually had, you know, I come from a community that practices FGM. So I um, knew about the issue, but was very uncomfortable with the, um, you know, the topic. It's kind of squeamish. It's a little bit, um, you know, it's very personal. It's very sensitive. And so um, it was when I was actually in, in the State Department in the Foreign Service, I was in the Gambia with an activist. And so I was, you know, in one of my, I was at a conference, it was sort of work related. And um, we were having a convening, engaging religious leaders around gender-based violence. And FGM was part of that conversation. And so the activist who's, you know, 
um, originally from Gambia, you know, was at the time living in Atlanta, was sort of like, oh, I'm like the U.S. face of FGM. Everyone thinks it's an African issue. I wish that, you know, I know that it happens to other communities. I wish it was um, more people would speak up from different communities um, so that it's seen, it changes kind of the perception of the issue. And so I told her, I confided in her, you know, I absolutely agree. And in fact, I'm a survivor of FGM myself, but I haven't been public about it. Um, and so then she said, you know, um, so I had a conversation with my dad and I was like, well, I'm going to try to find someone within our community uh, because the uh, International Day of Zero Tolerance, February 6th, was just coming up. And so there was, um, the Guardian was looking for to commission a piece because every year they do something on this. And so, uh, so my friend said, yeah, if you can find someone, great, I can connect them to the Guardian and then they can run a piece. So it wouldn't just be my voice yet again for another year, you know, over and over again. So I looked within my community and I couldn't find anyone um, because there's a lot of, I'm learning now as I've become public, a lot of backlash, a lot of pushback and other things. Um, and so my dad was the one who said, listen, if you, uh, if you want to change the narrative, you need to drive it. You need to, you should speak up. And so, um, and you know, in my case, I'm sort of lucky because my, my, so my parents, my aunt who cut me when I was seven, um, didn't, uh, I was in India at the time and I wasn't with my parents. And so she did it without their consent. So my parents have been actually unusually supportive of the work I've been doing. In many cases, it's not, it's more complex because sometimes the parents are involved. So, um, so I, I did it. And then after I published this piece in The Guardian in 2016, then I sort of became, once you put, once you put yourself out there in that way, it's hard to walk it back. You know, you become kind of now part of this uh, national and even global conversation. So, um, so recently, the, uh, after I came back from my foreign service posting in Pakistan, uh, there was a federal trial. Uh, there was a federal case in Detroit where nine girls were transported from Minnesota and Illinois to Michigan, making it a federal uh, uh, case. And um, the, the, the judge in Detroit ruled that the Congress never had the authority to pass the federal statute on FGM based on um, his interpretation of the Commerce Clause. So it's very technical reading. And so what that meant was that there was no federal ban on FGM. So um, the Department of Justice was supposed to appeal, but later decided to drop the appeal. So in the meantime, while this is getting sorted um, on whether or not a new federal statute is introduced or what happens with the case, I then decided to kind of, um, you know, I, I joined the advisory board of this U.S. network to end FGM and pushed for state legislation um, to close the federal loophole. So now there's about um, a little over a dozen states that don't have laws that are dedicated to criminalizing FGM. So I've been pushing um, for, uh, for states uh, like my brother's home state of Washington state, for example, um, to, to push for legislation. So, um, so it's been a really interesting process. Another great learning experience of, you know, how it can be really difficult sometimes with these issues because the people you think would be uh, your allies end up not being your allies. And then some of the folks that you might be a little hesitant to work with end up pushing, pushing the issue for an alternative agenda. So some of the like anti-immigrant groups, anti-Muslim groups that have been very proactive, but then their agenda can be counterproductive. And then on the other side of it, progressive groups that are very well-meaning don't want this to become an anti-immigrant issue. So they've been pushing back on legislation. Mm -hmm. So it's been an interesting, I've, I've learned a lot. I mean, I think in terms of negotiation, some of the, the skills I learned in the foreign service about patience and diplomacy and kind of um, being strategic, I've had to really apply in this case as well. 
Wow, that's amazing. What an inspiration. Um, so uh, am I correct that you received an award for your work on this? Yes, it was great. It was, uh, so it's, thank you. It, it was uh, pretty exciting. So the George Washington University and the Global Women's Peace Foundation that was started by a Liberian American, um, uh, Angela Peabody, who's incredible. Uh, they uh, gave me an award just a few weeks ago, actually, in DC um, for, as a survivor activist. Um, and so uh, it was such an honor, largely because of who was gonna be the award. Uh, Angela in particular is kind of this, like you, Bonnie, in this space, like sort of a superhero. So, um, so she's um, really, she pushed for legislation in Virginia that I think is kind of a model for all states because it doesn't just look at criminalizing FGM um, because that's important as a deterrent. And I think it's as a norm setting mechanism, but also for um, uh, pushing the state of Virginia for, for resources towards prevention and education, working with school nurses, working in the education system, with healthcare practitioners. So it's a very holistic approach to um, bringing about an end to FGM, which I think is, is critical. So in, in every state, I mean, we're pushing for the baseline, but, but she's kind of gone above and beyond. So, um, so it was really, and the co-awardee, uh, or one of the co-recipients co was uh, a representative um, from Pennsylvania, who's also been really active in pushing for legislation at the state level, but also at the federal level. So it was kind of great for me to, uh, at the ceremony to meet uh, this representative and build a connection um, that will hopefully help me with my work in mobilizing other legislators um, at the state level. Great. That's wonderful. Congratulations on thank that. You. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and your story is such inspiration. And I, I don't want to conclude without, um, you know, there's so many lessons learned and so many things that, you know, you've accomplished in your life and, 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 and survived mm -hmm. in your life. And you're such inspiration. Uh, what what would you tell uh, young women um, who are listening to this podcast? And um, I mean, I think just listening to what you've talked about and uh, today and, you know, your accomplishments and everything, I think is in itself um, an inspiration. But if you were to say, you know, if you were had a young, young, young uh, girl kind of looking up and saying, you know, how do I become you? <laughs> yeah. How do I, how do I achieve some of these things you've achieved? What do you tell them? I think it's such a great question. And I, I myself am still learning. So I, but from what, from what I've kind of, um, I'm starting to kind of what I've gone through and after a lot of reflection, I think just being patient with yourself. Um, I think that's something, you know, growing up, I was so, uh, I had all these checklists and plans and I was going to do this by this age and, you know, and I think um, that's important to have roadmaps. I think that's always helpful. But um, but just being open to kind of improvising a bit, being um, if something comes, if an opportunity comes up that really interests you, um, and it's not in part of your script or what what or society is scripting you towards. In my case, uh, with my parents, it was medicine, definitely. Um, and I think now they've really embraced my career, and they've become such even in the FGM space, like incredible advocates. I could never do anything without their support. I'm lucky for that. But I think if I'd listened to their kind of, you know, um, their advice growing up, I probably would have um, maybe been happy, but it, I, I don't think I could have lived like the life that has been so full and so interesting, um, taking on kind of these opportunities that came my way. So I think being open to uh, these opportunities that pop up and, and, and not being afraid to embrace them, 
And the other pieces, um, in addition to also the work-life balance, being patient, is also mentorship. I think I've really benefited from phenomenal mentors, like my um, professor from undergrad, Sarah Weddington. Well, I still, I just saw her about a, what is it, three months ago. I, you know, staying in touch with people, but um, mentors can be so transformative. So, you know, seeking out mentors potentially in a field that you might be interested in, even if you don't have the expertise. Um, and also, you know, once you get up to a certain point in your career where you have something, I mean, you have knowledge or skills or insights, um, you know, paying it forward and being a mentor to others uh, who come to you. Because I think particularly as women of color, you know, we face uh, sometimes some barriers and, and challenges that, um, that are unique to us and that can be really difficult. So I think creating that support network, uh, it, it just, um, you know, Bonnie, what you've created through this network, I think it's just so critical. So the more, I, I can't stress that enough, um, kind of the cycle of mentorship, both on the receiving end, but also in giving back. Great. Wow. This, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, no, thank you. So this was such a joy. I mean, just, it's an honor, honestly, being interviewed by you because you're, you're my, one of my inspirations. So I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And we definitely want to stay up on what you're doing. So please, please keep us informed. Think of WCAPS as an ally in what Absolutely. you're doing. And if there's ways that we can support that work that you're doing, you know, certainly let us know. Certainly let me know. Absolutely. Um, I definitely will. We do have a great network and we can definitely find ways to get out the word uh, of what you're doing um, and, and try to help uh, with impact. Um, so thanks again for taking the time out of your day. Um, and we'll be, po you know, people will be hearing this uh, soon. And just want to remind the audience to continue to listen to these amazing women in these podcasts. Uh, for these really uh, these great stories uh, in terms of career, in terms of, you know, personal uh, overcome, personal challenges overcome, you know, to make these women as amazing as they are. So thanks for listening. And um, we will have another edition for you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Miriam. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things WCAPS, visit us at wcaps.org or join us at an event in a city near you. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at wcapsnet. Until next time, speak up, speak out, get engaged.